We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the fifth episode in the spring series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia become a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. WWF is proud to be collaborating with Goodwill Hunters on this series in the lead-up to COP26, the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow from the 31st of October to the 12th of November. You can join the conversation via Goodwill Pod or at hashtag RegenerateAustralia. In our fifth episode of the series, we speak with James Thornton, CEO of the world's largest certified travel B Corp, Intrepid Group, and with Alice Ruiza, Regional Director of WWF Africa. We discuss the revival of the tourism industry following nearly two years of international lockdowns and how the industry can become more sustainable as travellers return. We discuss the benefits of tourism to local communities, as well as the perils of having an influx of international travellers hopping on long-haul flights and descending on cities and towns. How can we make that better? How can we make tourism a force for good for both people and the planet? In listening to Alice and James, it is clear that it's central that local people need to be at the heart of all solutions for the travel industry. And I'm excited that Africa is leading the way during a global pandemic in redefining what is the future of sustainable tourism. We hope you enjoy this episode. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning. We've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia.
So James Ellis, thanks for being on the show. I might start with a big picture question um, on ecotourism because it's a phrase that's getting thrown around a lot and I think it means a lot of things to a lot of people. So James, if I can perhaps start with you, what does ecotourism mean these days and how have you seen the concept evolve? Oh, it's a great question. Um, I, I guess ecotourism, I think, um, I think in, in the past was potentially considered a, a very niche type of type of travel, a, a type of travel that was um, potentially uh, potentially not not for everyone. And I think the way in which we increasingly see ecotourism evolve as a, as a phrase is that more often than not, it's the way in which many people want to travel. I, I think it's it's more a, a reflection of people's uh, lifestyles. It's a reflection of traveling to a destination and having a, having a lighter touch to respecting local communities, to getting under the skin of a destination, to meeting the people, trying the food. Um, so I feel like it's gone from being something that was almost like a uh, quite an extreme kind of niche type of uh, type of experience to something that is increasingly becoming more mainstream and certainly more requested by by consumers. Yeah, thanks, James and Alice. In in the context of Africa, how does how does ecotourism land for you? Um, well, from from my perspective, Rachel, I think. You know, it's it's a myth that sustainable travel is more expensive or or even inconvenient. Um, for Intrepid, I think sustainable travel means staying at locally owned accommodation. It means eating at the best local restaurants. It means hopping on some public transport and getting truly under the skin of a destination. And personally, I'd argue that that's a, a better experience if you, if you're really after an authentic experience and you want to get a new perspective on the world. It's much better travelling in that way than staying in a you know foreign-known resort or uh, only travelling by private car or bus. So I, I think I would I would tackle that question, particularly in terms of what this pandemic has meant to tourism. So when you think about tourism in Africa, you know tourism has transformed the very nature of conservation in Africa. It completely engendered a revolution in community-based natural resource management through revenue sharing. It enabled the expansion of conservation outside of protected areas and involved communities into local natural resource management. It, pro- it changed the conservation narrative from exclusion to inclusion, you know, from government ownership to community rights. It demonstrated that potential of how you can channel resources from wealthy economies to developing countries to communities and supported really created vast multiplier effects across many economic sectors. When you look at studies that show that one night a tourist spends in a high-end resort in, in a remote part of Africa, benefits 14 people in the surrounding community. So when you think about that, and you think about what the pandemic has done then and how it has turned around all those great benefits coming out of tourism, yes, people are more willing now to come and visit and, and really look at that human side and, and see how they can support the human, the, these impacts of, of, of uh, impacts that communities are feeling. And, and, and therefore, I see that the willingness to, to do, be more, to support this ecotourism model more after the pandemic is stemming, especially from people being, being knowledgeable about the far-reaching effects of, of uh, tourism itself on in and in and of itself in, in Africa in most parts of Africa now the question about the expense is real 
it does tend to be expensive. Uh, I, 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 I agree with you. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be, but it does tend to be expensive. And I, and I think, but, but I think it doesn't have to be, especially if you think about a location that is growing its own food and can, can use solar power and can use local people. There's ways that savings like that can be passed on to the consumers and make it much cheaper. And therefore, right now, it may sound uh, expensive, but actually it doesn't have to be. I was just going to flag one other one other point as well, Rachel, Richard and Doma, which is that one of the things Intrepid's been doing as a result of this, this pandemic is we've actually looked at how we can decarbonize our trips. And, and so we're trying to feature experiences more like walking, trekking and cycling, which I think people want to do a bit more as a result of the pandemic. But one of the actions that we took as a result of trying to decarbonize our trips was to remove um, internal flights that are less than an hour or an hour and a half in, in nature. And so if you take a destination like Cambodia, often on our trips, you would have your experience in Siem Reap or Phnom Penh, and then you go to the airport, you jump on a plane, and you would uh, end up in, in, in the alternative place 45 minutes later. And to be honest, it was a pretty ordinary experience. And actually, um, still domestic flying tends to, tends to cost a bit. And in, instead, what we've done is remove those kind of hopping on a short haul flight and try and build in other ways of traveling between destinations. I think, James, that's a, that's a great example and um, about decarbonizing the in-country experience and, and adding the experience so it's more of a local spirit that Alice talked about. But uh, so out of your two previous answers, I wanted to come back to both of you. The, the first bit is that deals with in-country travel um, emissions but it doesn't deal with the long haul issue. And Alice, you talked about um, those amazing benefits that it provides to not only the individual working in the industry, but in the community as well. What the pandemic, I think, and Alice, you've been working on this has shown us that when long haul flights were closed down, it created a lot of problems um, in those communities that were very dependent on foreign tourism. So how how do we get back hopefully to more um a more safer connected world where people will be doing long-haul travel how do we deal with that issue uh james and alice how do we how do we make sure that um those benefits continue to go to communities alice do you want to go first then james i'll let you come back to the uh the long-haul flight issue so i said uh, first and foremost uh, you know when when uh the, when the, the lockdown started and there was no no revenue coming in from tourism, we went to visit the parks where we work in 13 countries and to assess what those impacts were. And as I said, the first hit is the hits are on park operations themselves because many of these park operations depend on money that's coming in from tourism. And many of them have benefit sharing schemes where, you know, about 20% of the revenue they receive goes to the communities. So there were those there was there were those impacts. Then the, the money also pays for rangers. So all of a sudden we are dealing with very high levels of, of poaching. So the first thing we did is to create an emergency fund. We created emergency funds that we were able to channel to various uh, parks to support, at least to keep the lights on. Because we we knew that if we didn't do the, do this, then what would be there when we eventually when we started coming out of the pandemic? And then another thing we really wanted to look at was to take another look at our model, this model that has been dependent on income from tourism. Uh, so two, two ways. First and foremost, boost domestic tourism, boost local tourism. 
Um, we have many people who have been living with this amazing natural heritage for many years who don't even get to visit it as much because we've created this model that tourism is for international people to come and see. I mean, we, we've done, so we had to really start to change that paradigm. Countries like Rwanda, for example, created very specific tours for locals. Uh, here in Kenya, they did the same. So there's that movement around really boosting domestic tourism um, uh, that, that would help. And also the many governments also gave part as part of their stimulus packages support, additional support to people. But we also started this pro program to look at beyond tourism. What does this mean if uh, tourism will be there, but what does it mean? How can we diversify this conservation model? And we actually run an, a whole an an, a challenge, an innovation challenge, and uh, we've, we are incubating seven new projects at the moment that are looking at alternative ways to raise money for conservation in Africa without depending depending on tour on depending on tourism. We have several great examples. For example, there's an, a, a very good one called Forest Pesa, which um, which starts. Let me let me get more information about about this, um, which looks at ways, ways of, of uh, paying communities for conserving forests around the community, paying them you know, using a mobile, a mobile channel. And, and, and a few others that I can give you examples about. So we've done, we've really done those three things. We've, we've uh, given emergency response. We have boosted local tourism by creating uh, more better, better prices, encouraging people more to visit more. But we've also started starting to look at these various models that could be could be could be channeled that, that uh, provide money for conservation without completely depending on ecotourism. James, you you talked in your previous question around reducing uh, flights in country by creating uh, exciting, interesting alternatives to travel on boats or buses or by bike. How do we deal with the issue though of long haul flights that gets people? you know, from one part of the world into Africa or Asia or Latin America that provides some of those benefits that Alice is talking about, um, but, you know, has a serious impact on um, on global emissions. Yeah, it does, does, Dermot. I think um, I think there's probably a couple of things we can, we can do and we should be doing. I think the first thing is that um, tour operators have a responsibility to encourage uh, travelers when they get the opportunity and, and have the desire to head to Africa or Latin America or Asia, wherever it may be on these longer haul flights, to be more considered and to take longer trips and to travel at a slightly slower pace in destination. I think, you know, gone are the days where we want to have a consumer flying from Australia to Peru to do a one-week experience and then fly home again something like 80% of all international flights taken are by 20% uh, of the most frequent flyers. Now, clearly, we know that um, frequent flyers are the, the most lucrative part of an airline's business, but you can't help but think there needs to be leadership from government in terms of potential taxes towards those who are utilising uh, air travel uh, more frequently than others. And speaking of Zoom, actually, to add in, we saw a lot of exciting uh, virtual experiences. Many parks actually resorted to creating virtual experiences for people overseas. And, I, and, and that was actually quite successful. We saw great examples here, here in many parks of, of that. So, so you're right. I mean, we, we've figured, we figured it out. But one thing I also wanted to talk about, about travel and about 
about offsets, uh, Damot, and your earlier question was, <coughs> it's amazing that studies show that uh, 85% of, of projects that have been put out there to offset carbon are actually not offsetting emissions. In fact, the best work around emission has to be, the, the best effort is, has to be around emission reductions on site. The things that are done on site to reduce emissions, whether it's minimizing water usage or it's using solar power or others, are actually more, much, much more uh, impactful than that. So I think something to think about also is how can you make those locations where people go more, reduce more of their emissions, uh, even as you're dealing with the air travel issues? And so I think, Alice, that's a really good point regarding the emissions. And a question we wanted to raise is um, the Paris Agreement doesn't include international aviation, um, which is a debate in and of itself, should it? But how, how motivated are, are corporations in the tourism industry going to be to help reduce or offset those emissions when the Paris Agreement doesn't sort of, um, well, encourage anyone to do so? And, and James, you also mentioned government incentives there. What about what should government be doing to encourage that too? I think, um, Rachel, it's a really interesting question. We keep, obviously, the, the pandemic has been absolutely devastating for so many industries, but particularly the tourism industry. But the reality is that hopefully over the course of the next 6, 12, 18 months, there, there will be a, a vaccination um, pathway out, hopefully, that will enable us to live in a COVID normal world. But in, in the issue of climate change, there is no vaccination for climate change and hard as it is to believe now for the travel industry um, in, in 20 or 30 years time if we don't actively tackle reducing emissions not offsetting emissions reducing emissions and frankly the travel industry faces a, a more existential crisis so at Intrepid we've been carbon neutral since 2010 which means that we've offset all emissions from our trips and offices using gold standard carbon offsets but critically what we've recognized is that offsets was a, offsetting was a great strategy uh, 11 years ago, but simply it is no longer enough. And what we really need to be doing is reducing the amount of carbon that we produce as a company. And it's why last year in, in January 2020, we declared a climate emergency and published our seven-step climate commitment plan, which you can find transparent on our website. And, and then we've gone one step further this time last year in October 2020, becoming the first and so far only tour operator to have verified carbon emission reduction targets by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And the SBTI is a response to the call to action for companies to set emission reductions targets in line with a 1.5 degree future. It's backed by a global network of UN agencies and businesses and industry leaders and the 1.5 degree targets. I do know, I do agree. And, um, and and you said, you know, the Paris Agreement doesn't uh, cover aviation, but I've noticed that the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation, or COSIA, aims to stabilize carbon dioxide emissions at 2020 levels by requiring airlines to offset the growth of their emissions after 2020. So even if the the Paris Agreement doesn't cover this. We do see some other efforts around the aviation industry that are starting to look into this. Airlines will be required to monitor emissions on all international routes and all of that that is happening. But uh, but in terms of what we can do then in in Africa to do that, I, I think in many ways we we will benefit from uh, then the decision, the the big momentum as that we see at the moment in the corporate sector and others, or even individuals 
to, to, to go net zero or to reduce their own emissions. So even um, even if we, we do not produce that many emissions in general in, in Africa, uh, the travelers, we're seeing more travelers being very conscious about this. And I think whereas travelers were making uh, maybe four or five trips a year, they're probably going to be making one or, or one or every year or one every two years now. And that goes back to the point I made earlier, the need to boost local tourism the need to boost domestic tourism, the need to make domestic tourism more and more affordable for for, for our, our local people. Hmm. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the need for more domestic tourism, Alice, and I, of course I agree, but I wonder, would, would the tourism industry in many parts of Africa survive on domestic tourism alone? Like surely there will be a continued dependence on international travellers. Are you just saying that dependence should be less? Yes. I'm saying that 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 we should we should this is a wake-up call, that this pandemic is a wake-up call. And by the way, the pandemic hasn't stopped. And you know, Africa is going to go about five percent vaccinated. So we are still going to be where we are in lockdowns and in, in all of these issues. So this is going to continue. It's already done one and a half years. It's going to continue into, into probably another two or three years. So really, we need we can't say that we can still depend on international travelers. I think that international travelers will be there, but at a less, much, much lesser scale. And by the way, domestic tourism is starting to increase. Um, and this summer, when I went to Savo National Park here in Nairobi, where I live, I found quite a few people there, and most all of them were from Kenya. They were not coming from outside. So it's starting to increase. Now, can it survive? Well, not in the short term. I mean, I think in the long term, in, in the short term, we're, we're still going to struggle. One of the things I hadn't, I didn't get a chance to mention earlier is we started this platform. It's a tourism platform that links very hard-to-reach communities at the last mile to donors, to other donors who are trying to support this industry and provide this emergency response, but have not really been able to reach others. And again, we're, we're getting a lot more, more and more people needing on that platform. We're getting more and more people needing to be to be supported. I'm afraid we're probably going to stay a little bit in this scheme, in this scheme for a long time. But there's hope, there's hope in terms of even getting our own governments. We're seeing our own governments bring in more and more resources, domestic resources, resources out of their stimulus packages into tourism. Kenya here gave, I think, a 35% package. Uganda has done the same. The IMF has talked about this a lot. So looking for all those other resources, our own domestic resources and investing into nature conservation because of that, that's also extremely important. So, um, Alice, James, I think in a recent interview, you said that ceasing travel altogether isn't feasible um, due, to, due to part of what we've just been talking about, that, you know, there are millions of people whose livelihoods depend on the tourism industry. Um, and, Alice, you've talked a little bit about domestic tourism, yeah? But I, I guess the, if, how about localization? So this is, this is not... Uh, European or Australian companies bringing people in and using local services. This is uh, Nepalese companies running um, operations in country and so retaining a lot more of the income in their countries. Can we? Can you just talk a little bit about localization and the importance of building um, the capabilities of of um, domestic industries to manage the tourism, the foreign tourism dollar? 
I guess, you know, companies and organisations like Intrepid that fundamentally believe that sustainable tourism is, is the way to go have invested lots of time and energy and money in making sure that we recruit and we train and we employ um, local leaders and local businesses to, to run trips on our behalf. And what we found over the course of time is that we actually get a better um, net promoter score as a result of, of having local people run trips in their destination. Because again, frankly, when you travel to a destination, you want to hear from from the local people. So we we find that not only is it the the kind of the, the right thing to do in destination, but it's the the right thing for our for our customers. It provides greater distribution of of income, and and hopefully then it, it does create um, some some greater level of resilience during times where tourism does downturn. And obviously, tourism has downturned significantly at the moment because of the impacts of COVID. But if you chart back to different times during different events in, in Nepal during the course of the earthquake and the, the devastating earthquake that took place in 2015 or if you go back to the uh, issues of Ebola in Africa where tourists then aren't traveling to a destination it does hopefully um, provide you know greater greater skills that are transferable during during times of economic downturn. Yes, I believe I agree and I, and I believe it, I, I believe in many places it, it's already happening. I think in many of these, places where you have international two operators, you really they really work a lot with local people. You know, when you go to the Maasai Mara, um, maybe the lodge may be owned by an international organization, but actually the people who are taking you around are local people. The people who are, that you tours are local people. The people who are selling the curios around the park are local people. Uh, the people who are supplying food to the park are local people. Uh, your tour, your tour guides are local people, as 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 James was saying. So the local, the involvement, the localization, and the involvement of the local local people is there. But maybe one one idea that also occurred to me that we thought about years ago when I was uh, at UNDP, it was about establishing an international, a scheme for international payments for ecosystem services, so that it doesn't mean that the tourists can visit, but there are a lot of people out there in the international world, including in Australia, who are interested in nature conservation, see the value of nature conservation, look at the Congo Basin and say, look at an, an important carbon sink that that is for the rest of the world and the last places where you, those last places on earth that may be willing to put funds into an international scheme, payment for ecosystem services. They don't have to get out there and visit, but they can put money in a fund that keeps these places standing and keeps them going. That could also be one area to we're looking at, at the, when you think, think about diversing diversifying revenue. Thanks, Alice. So let, let's let's pick up and bring two things together, which we've sort of been talking about, climate change and livelihoods and the, and the benefits that tourism, particularly ecotourism, can make. Um, and the perhaps the jewel in the crown are really world heritage areas. They, you know, bring a lot of people uh, travel around the world to visit those uh, world heritage places for their natural beauty. Um, but, you know, at the last UNESCO meeting, the World Heritage Committee meeting, the, there was a discussion about the Great Barrier Reef being in danger. We've had, we've got World Heritage Parks in Africa that have been in danger. Um, and tourism plays a really significant role on, you know, in the economy of Queensland or Uganda or, um, and so, but of course, climate, the climate science is really clear. You know, these areas are under, under great stress. And as we move towards 1.5 degrees, um, 
I guess the question to you is, are we at risk of loving the Great Barrier Reef or the gorillas in Burundi in Central Park to death? Um, are we going to get to the point where, you know, the universal values that that define those world heritage areas are either degraded or so vulnerable that we won't be able to to have tourists visit? We we do potentially risk it, there, don't we? I, I think, as according to a report by Deloitte Access Economics, the Great Barrier Reef has a an economic or reported economic, social, and is it icon asset value of something like fifty billion dollars and it supports over 60,000 jobs and it, it contributed in a post-COVID environment over $6 billion to the Australian economy. And But as you said, UNESCO said the reef is in danger and the primary reason for that is, is climate change and, and global warming co- caused by fossil fuels. Um, and, and I think it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicted that if we have a 1.5% rise in temperature, it's going to destroy 70 to 90% of the reef's globally so you know unesco has pointed to other threats to the reef including pollutants from land-based runoff agriculture as well as from coastal development and overuse but we've got to remember that the 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 reef provides huge huge um, cultural significance to australians particularly for first nations people so fundamentally australia needs needs to be much stronger on, on climate action it needs to be far more ambitious in in the targets that we are setting if we are to limit global warming and and that ultimately is the, the biggest threat to the reef and i absolutely acknowledge as well though that tourism operators have, have absolutely got a role to play as well and they've got to commit to firstly carbon neutrality which, as I said earlier, I, I don't think is enough anymore, and, and more and more to science-based carbon reduction targets because that is the uh, that is the only the only way working in in unison. But you know there are successful approaches in in places like Rwanda and Costa Rica, and Alice can obviously talk much more intimately to the the African experience where we are seeing some successes. So, Alice, Alice, tackle those, and I can can jump in with what we're seeing in Rwanda as an example. Am I being am I being too bleak? Is you know the are we at risk of of losing you know these world heritage areas if we don't step up on you know to decarbonize as James talked about? You know I think you've touched on something extremely important there, Damot, the importance of linking our goals for conserving biodiversity to our goals to address climate change. And the answer to that, of course, as you know, is nature-based solutions. Nature-based solutions contribute 30% of the solution to climate change. In fact, I don't see us addressing climate change properly without these nature-based solutions. Therefore, conserving the Congo Basin, we don't. when you do that, you don't just do it for the biodiversity. You don't just do it for gorillas or for the tourism. You do it because it's the second largest carbon sink in the world. And without that, you know, it, it is the best way for us to reduce emissions. You know, we need to conserve these places. So by conserving them, we, we, we really deal with those two things. We address the, the saving of the biodiversity and the saving of the last gorillas, but we also reduce emissions. So the nature-based solutions, whether it's conserving forests, whether it's wetlands and all of that, they're extremely, it's extremely important for us to do that. And I know UNESCO, for example, as you know, um, Salonga National Park, one of our biggest parks, one of Africa's largest, Africa's rainforest, was one of those that was uh, removed from the list in danger, which was perfect because 
it was recognized because of the government's decision to stop oil concessions uh, in that park so that it can continue to be protected. But I think for me, the biggest point here is how do you make sure you link your climate goals with your biodiversity goals? And also, it was also the point I was making earlier about policy coherence and how policy coherence can then can result into better domestic resource mobilization for conservation. Because the, if we can continue to make the clear case about why conserving nature is important for every part of the economy, whether it's about education, whether it's about health, whether it's about food, whether it's about infrastructure, then we can we can start to put all those resources, we can have portions of those resources, put them towards nature conservation because it's the solution. Thanks, Alice. So I guess to finish, there's two distinct narratives at play here. On the one hand, we know that tourism is a big contributor to global greenhouse gas emissions. It was around 8% between 2009 and 2013, and the number of international travellers was growing at about 5% per year. So that proportion was probably quite a bit higher by the time COVID hit. But we know on the other hand that COVID has cost the African tourism industry as much as $50 billion and that recovering the tourism sector will be critical to economic recovery in much of the developing world. With that, with that very complex problem and in the lead up to the COP, what, how do we recover the tourism industry sustainably um, and what sort of leadership would you like to see at the COP? and more broadly, to support that recovery? That's a big question, Rachel. Um, I think, um, I think the, first, the, first, the first thing is that the financial losses are massive and, and there's just no recovering from, from the lost years that have happened. And, but as you said earlier, the human and social costs have been absolutely enormous too, and, and we have to balance those two things. And... You know, we know, for example, women who work in tourism have been disproportionately affected and as they often are in, in casual or part-time work. And, and that leads you concerned that you might see more kind of growth in things like orphanage tourism or children leaving school to go to work. So we do have to have an opportunity to adopt strategies and frameworks that try to make tourism more resilient, more resilient and, and, and more sustainable. Um, in terms of what, what do we want to see at, at, at COP, I think uh, ultimately we want to see, um, you know, more, more more focus around the ability to set and not just set, but to uh, implement and demand carbon reduction from, um, from travel and tourism activities in line with a, a 1.5 degree future. So we, we have to be stronger because, as I said earlier, you know, as, as devastating as it's been over the course of the last 18 months, if we don't take action now and, and you know, action to 2030 or 2035, it isn't that far away, I'm afraid. But if we don't take this action now, we simply aren't going to have um, a, a beautiful planet to show off and the tourism industry will be potentially more devastated than, than it has been by COVID. And as a result, um, you know, local communities will lose that 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 form of income, which often, in, for many countries in places be it like Rwanda or Costa Rica, it, that forms a significant part of their GDP. So, um, so you know, we will need to see very strong leadership come from COP that says very sets very clear direction, and for both government and business to come together and ensure we find ways to to implement a more sustainable future. 
Yeah, big question. Uh, big question. So what do, um, number, of course, we, we, it will be very hard to recover. I agree with, with James. The losses are huge and, and, and they continue to be huge. So therefore, one of the most important things we need to continue to do is making sure that our governments put part of this stimulus package uh, resources that they're receiving. The IMF just gave another special drawing rights, $650 billion to, to governments, that we need to put some of those resources towards continuing to support the communities that are affected by this, continuing to really support the sector. But most importantly, as I said, it's, 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 it's about the nature-based solutions to climate change. It's about conserving nature, not just, not just for tourism's sake, but because it contributes to 30% of the solution for climate change. So being very deliberate about that. And in fact, a study we just did in East Africa, just looking at five East African countries, we found that going green was, going, was bringing $21 billion, $21 billion to their GDP, just through renewable energy, you know, a really strong focus on, on moving, moving from coal, you know, to solar, to solar or to renewable energy for climate smart agriculture, you know, they avoided costs of paying for climate climate adaptation. You know, that was another another big one that we saw. Restoration itself, one dollar come one dollar invested brings nine dollars. So big programs like the Great Green Wall Initiative, programs like the uh, the Africa Forest Landscape Restoration Initiative, very important ones for us going forward and for us to continue to invest in and really do that. You know, the nature based solutions. But I think most importantly also to leave no one behind. We have to make sure that we empower women, we empower indigenous people, our youth, and all of us that we are all making sure that whatever goes on does that. So the main message to the co-op really is really about nature-based solutions, but it's also about policy coherence. It's about making sure that we don't just think that the climate agenda is a narrow, is that we work on it. No, it's the, the, these things, they affect us in all of us in every way. Let's have an, an agenda that is coherent, an agenda that sees the links between cli addressing climate to the links between saving nature. All of these are important and they all work together and we should all be pushing together in an integrated approach. Alice, that's a great summary of WWF's position going into the COP, but um, thank you so much. You know, I, I'm struck in this conversation that you know the answers. You are talking about what the answers are to sustainable tourism, to eco-tourism. And so we're not in a world where we don't know what to do. It's about getting out there and making it happen. So I'd like to thank James, you and Alice for those amazing insights into what really needs to be done to, to for both people and nature. Thanks, Dermot. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. That was episode five of the Goodwill Hunters Spring Series. Join us next week for a conversation with three outstanding female sustainability and conservation leaders from Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. Until then, join the conversation via at Goodwill Pod and hashtag Regenerate Australia.